Welcome to the Daily Standard Podcast. It's October 26, 2018, and because it is Friday, we do a cross-platform discussion with our friends at Politico. And joining me uh, today, Ben Schreckinger, the white, new, newly minted White House reporter for Politico. Thanks for joining me again, Ben. Thanks so much for having me back, Charlie. Okay, I want to talk about a piece you have. You uh, talk about uh, inside uh, Trump's midterm campaign rallies, the, the sense of soaring confidence. I want to get to that. I want to get to Trump's tweets about CNN overnight and and his very dodgy uh, iPhone use in a moment. But I, I have to just there, there are a few things that I get obsessed about that I sort of have to vent when I have when I have the opportunity, which I do on this podcast. The whole Michael Avenatti story. I mean, it is. This is really extraordinary. I was just uh, reading the story out of uh, NBC, where they're basically now acknowledging, yeah, this guy when he came up with the Julie Swetnick allegations, uh, may have been um, actually really trying to mislead NBC and our reporters. And you have folks over at CNN saying, hey, maybe it's time now to sort of slow roll the whole Michael Avenatti thing. So um, we have gone from the Michael Avenatti presidential bubble to people basically asking. WTF, what is with this guy? I mean, you know, I I understand the appeal that he fights and he struggles, but are we going to look back on 2018 and think Michael Avenatti, boy, what was that all about? What a what a con man. My my gut tells me yes, uh, but I'm also reminded of uh, the early days of the Trump campaign in 2015, where people were uh, shocked to discover uh, that this guy was baldly lying left and right. Uh, he was insulting John McCain's status as a war hero. Uh, people felt quite sure uh, at about 10 points along the way in in 2015. Uh, that Trump would be an afterthought by the time we got to Iowa. You know, this is a, that is a, that is just a great point. And you wonder how much the window of acceptability has changed in our politics when we do this sort of thing. It's just, uh, I, I, I'm probably going to write about it and I'll have to fess up that I actually have a selfie with, uh, with Michael Avenatti, which I am, huh. I am not, I am not proud of at all, you know, but then a lot of people thought, you know, Wow, this is uh, this is kind of interesting. Maybe he does have something on CD, and it just what a scam. Uh, but yeah, it, it, I am wa- seeing on social media some folks saying I'm still behind, you know, Michael Avenatti because uh, we need somebody like this to go up against Trump. Which is wow. Speaking of uh, the president, uh, overnight uh, tweeting about uh, CNN. That seems like kind of an evergreen comment, but this uh, this comes uh, about what uh, a little less than 48 hours after the quote-unquote new tone moment where the president called for uh, national unity in the wake of, at that point, I don't know how many bombs there were. We're at 12 now with James Clapper and Cory Booker. But the president, uh, um, again, Ben, uh, not terribly surprising, reverting to form and lashing out at CNN. That's right. And he also, uh, last Thursday, when the uh, Khashoggi's story was still a little bit fresher, uh, praised Greg Gianforte for body slamming a reporter at his rally in Missoula. Uh, so it, it does not seem uh, that there is much uh, that can convince the president it's time to tone down his rhetoric about the press. Uh, we saw it last week and we're seeing it again this week. Do you think do you, do you think the they'll play devil's advocate here? You know, has has the press have have people in the media 
gone overboard in blaming Donald Trump for the the bombs without knowing who, in fact, is responsible. I mean, at this moment, we we don't know a lot about uh, who is behind all of that. And there does seem to be a rush to point the finger specifically at uh, Donald Trump and his rhetoric. I think that anyone who is jumping to conclusions and making political points based on this is is being premature. Uh, Which would be everybody. Yeah, yeah. Everybody who's weighing in, uh, the facts are are not in. Um, we just don't know, uh, and so I I think that in the wall it may be fair uh, to talk about this overheated atmosphere right now, and in terms of rhetoric about the press and the relationship between the press and mm-hmm. and the president. Um, and that that's sort of it's perhaps never the wrong time to point out that the the rhetoric has reached a point that it's dangerous. Uh, I do think drawing any conclusions too firmly off of uh, off of these failed pipe bombs uh, is premature. Yeah, it, it, it obviously is. However, uh, I'm willing to go out on a limb with a prediction, which I have a piece uh, in the Weekly Standard uh, on, on, on the website today um, to to make the prediction that um, everything is going to get worse. That there's, there's no way that we, we are not going to have a moment of uh, of bipartisan uh, calming down at, at all. Um, the other story that is attracting a lot of attention, and and I'm not sure that we've really figured out how big a deal is. I think it's a very very big deal. The story about the uh, the president's use of an unsecured iPhone uh, to call his friends and his buddies and his cronies, uh, an, an iPhone that, uh, so, some sources are saying that the, Ch- the Chinese are able to monitor. And the irony of course, is that president Trump ran against Hillary Clinton. Um, you know, the whole locker up thing about the unsecured emails. Now we find out that the president may be having completely unsecured conversations. Um, the, the good news, Ben, as far as I can tell, is that people are saying, yeah, they're probably he's probably not giving away too much classified information because he doesn't doesn't listen to the the daily classified information briefings. I'm not sure if that's very reassuring. Yeah, that's right. Uh, this is, uh, I think Politico had reported a few months ago that he was he was still using a cell phone. Uh, we didn't have the Russians and the Chinese were listening in. I thought one detail that was interesting is that the Chinese listen a lot more closely because uh, the Russians figure that the president's relationship is good enough with Vladimir Putin that they don't need to be scrutinizing his calls as closely. Yeah. Can, you, can you imagine having that job, by the way, having to listen in and all that and transcribe it? That that may be one well, of the lousiest jobs in, in international spying, I would think. International international espionage used to be more interesting, I'm guessing. But, I mean, it, it is really extraordinary when you think about what the stakes are internationally if, in fact, the Chinese are directly listening into the president of the United States. And yet, uh, you know, I, I mean, I, whatever – and I, I was very critical of Hillary Clinton. A lot of conservatives and Republicans were critical of Hillary Clinton for perhaps exposing secrets. But that's pretty much nothing compared to the Chinese being able to listen into directly into the president of the United States' phone calls. That's right. Uh, and you do ha- you do have to wonder if it is. I mean, if it's all if it sounds like his Twitter feed and it's all griping <laughs> about the press and asking. I mean, I guess even if he's asking, should I fire fire Mattis? Should I 
you know, should I keep Bolton on? That does have national security implications, those windows in, into the president's frame of mind. Um, oh, sure. Well, uh, and, and, and whether he's talking about, uh, you know, thing, things that, that might be embarrassing enough that uh, would provide the Chinese leverage. I mean, it doesn't take a huge amount of imagination to understand how that could go badly. It's, it's amazing that no one can get him to just use a landline. You know, it's I, I don't I don't know how far he can be from a landline at any time, you know, 15 feet across the room or whatever. Um, but I guess convenience is king. Well, and also, if, if, if I'm reading this correctly, he also um, has been given other iPhones that are secure. He just doesn't want to bother using them. So, I mean, it's a it's a it's a degree of recklessness that is uh, rather breathtaking. Um, but I want to talk about your piece, because you have, you know, in, in, in a year in which the narrative has been about the big blue wave and democratic enthusiasm, uh, you have a piece in Politico. Where you talk about uh, the mood at the at the Trump rallies. Now, you 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 covered the the campaign rallies, correct? That's right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So you 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 have some experience going. So give me some sense. You went to several of these campaign events, and and you say that uh, the resentments of 2016 have been replaced by a triumphal sense of confidence. So tell me about this mood and how it's different than the campaign, the presidential campaign. Sure. There was uh, a sense during the presidential campaign among the, the most diehard supporters that uh, this is a country on the precipice. Uh, this is our last hope. Uh, we are surrounded on all sides by various enemies, be they progressives or, uh, you know, extremists, jihadists, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Uh, immigrants, you know, criminal immigrants. Well, there was there was that sense. Um, it, it felt like an insurgency. There were plenty of people at those rallies during the campaign uh, who would say, you know, I'm not crazy about Trump, but at least he's not Hillary Clinton, or I'm really just here for the spectacle. Uh, and I was struck uh, it, at these recent rallies by how uniformly uh, pro-Trump people were and, and how they felt that the president basically had uh, had turned the country around already. His presidency was already a historic success. Uh, there was no hemming and hawing about, will the Democrats take the House? Is Robert Mueller going to derail this presidency? Uh, if anything, there were plenty of people there who were believers uh, in this Q conspiracy theory who informed me that Trump and Robert Mueller uh, are actually working together that there are 50,000 sealed indictments they've drawn up okay, uh, to seriously? go after there, there are pedophiles. Oh, absolutely. There, seriously, there are people the, who believe this. The very first person I ran into at the first of these rallies, which was last Thursday in Missoula, uh, told told this guy as I was walking up to the line that I was a reporter from Washington. Uh, this guy looked kind of like a business executive, big six foot two, clean cut guy. First thing he says is, so what do you think about Q? Uh, and then he spends the next several minutes bringing up videos on his phone about it. Uh, plenty of shirts, Q shirts being worn, people selling Q shirts. It was on bumper stickers. Um, there are a lot of people who believe in that thing. 
Yeah, you know, it's funny you should bring this up because I, I was, I don't know, I can't remember whether I've talked about this on the podcast. You know, when you do a podcast every day, you know, that you forget what you, you said, but I was down in Austin, Texas for the Texas Tribune Festival. The first cab driver I had, you know, starts telling me about this this whole theory, you know, that, that you know, there are 50,000, uh, there are 50,000, uh, you know, indictments that are sealed. And and he said that that he didn't get this off the Internet, that he got this from listening to people who are talking on the phone who are riding in the car with him, which I thought was, well, I'm going to be really careful what I say when I'm riding in the car with this guy. Well, well you know, what's interesting about your account is it, it, it does indicate the, the sort of the alternative realities that we are living in, you know, as you have all of the the anger out there in the in the sense that uh, the Republicans are going to take a shellacking. When you describe what's going on here, you say that the you know, that as, as you mentioned, the campaign events that once incubated anger and disenfranchisement have taken on an air of joyous celebration. People do not believe the polls. You know, he literally saved this country from going off the cliff. Literally, apparently some uh, sculptor tells you the sun has risen again. It's like we can see the sun again. OK, if they really. But but, you know, outside the rallies. And I think it's really striking that the, the Trump and the Republicans are, well, at least Trump is not, does not seem to be uh, waging a, uh, you know, happy days are here again campaign. It still does feel like he is stoking the anger and re- resentment. I mean, that's why we are talking about uh, uh, the, the the caravan and all of the the things that the Democrats are planning to do. So there is there is kind of a, a dichotomy here, isn't there? There is a little bit of a disconnect. Trump is uh, campaigning against left-wing mobs. He was still bringing up, you know, I know a thing or two about rigged. Ask Bernie Sanders about rigged. He was, he was, uh, you know, prosecuting grudges uh, from the prime from the Democratic primary from early 2016, uh, in what he was talking about in his speech speeches on the stump. And if you talk to the supporters I talk to, at least. Um, you know, sure, yeah, you know, what happened to Kavanaugh was terrible, they'll say, and oh, yeah, this caravan, uh, you can't have that, and, and Nancy Pelosi and Maxine Waters are, are terrible. But there's not, it, it does not seem to be uh, anywhere near the top of their mind this threat of a Democratic takeover of the House. Uh, they are happy. They're chanting, walk her up and drain the swamp and build the wall. Um, and they feel like they've won. Yeah. Well, th- th- those are not totally joyous. I mean, they're, 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 they're still wanting to lock up Hillary Clinton, but that's sort of like a, a, a greatest hits. Is that what you're saying? That it's sort of like just sort of the, the chant to remind people of, of, of the good times. Yeah, yeah. There is almost <laughs> a sense of like this is a throwback. Yeah, like let's, let's bring out the classics. Um, it, I didn't put this in the story, but the it you know, it feels like, uh, a homecoming football game. And in Houston on Monday, they actually had an ESPN style pregame show in the arena with Laura Trump sitting in a broadcast booth. She was interviewing uh, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. She was interviewing campaign officials. It was being broadcast out uh, to the people waiting in line. Uh, so it's, it's like a it's like, uh, you know, a day at the races or something. Well, the uh, did, did you go? Did, were you up in Mosinee? Did you make the, 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 the rally up in Mosinee, Wisconsin? 
I did not. Okay. Well, they, it, it sounds like, because I was actually watching that online for a few minutes because, you know, to see which of my friends were, were there. And it sounded very much like the, the rallies that you, that you describe here. Uh, the, uh, th- this is what Donald Trump likes doing more than anything else, isn't it? I mean, if, you know, on, on top of his list as president of the United States, he seems to enjoy these rallies more than any other aspect of his job. That's right. And I remember doing a story way back at the beginning of his campaign uh, where Republican strategists were sort of questioning this. It was this it was this campaign that was built on rallies and they were building their whole strategy for get out yeah. the vote on who was attending, signing them up for things. Someone said he's he's a 70 year old man who's been rich all his life, who's at the who's at the dessert table at the buffet and he keeps going back for more. Basically saying that there was there was nothing valuable about these rallies. It was just what it, this was just dessert for Donald Trump, and he kept doing them. Um, I think what we found, arguably, is that uh, he's turned what he loves doing into a, a, a viable political approach because uh, he did end up winning in 2016, and uh, I guess we'll see what these rallies can do for for him in the midterm. Yeah, you also point out that there don't appear to be a lot of uh, liberal protesters. There were uh, always liberal protesters in 2016. That became part of the narrative. In fact, it's coming back as because, you know, people are playing the clips of, you know, beat him up, punch him in the mouth, you know, I'll pay your your legal bills and stuff like that. But that's not happening anymore. Any sense? Why not? It's a, it's a great question. Why not? The, the campaign, Trump himself went to great lengths in 2016 to foil protests, to root them out. At one point, uh, Trump had his private security team scouring social media to find people talking about protests they were planning so that they could find the people and get them out uh, before any protests actually happened. Uh, they were working with the bikers for Trump, motorcyclists who were sort of vigilantes who were helping the Trump people patrol these rallies and, and root out dissent. Uh, and th- there were massive clashes outside a lot of rallies. There was a rally in Chicago that never even happened, uh, hmm. basically because the whole town, oh, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, I don't know about the whole town, but there, there was widespread essentially rioting. Uh, you saw rioting in California. Uh, things were very muted uh, at the stops that I was at recently. <laughs> Uh, there was one guy in Houston who got taken out, uh, of the arena. Trump didn't even notice that this was happening. Uh, you had uh, a dozen college kids in Montana. Um, there was a larger counter rally in Montana, but it was far away, um, from the site of Trump's rally. Uh, and you had Alex Jones in Houston finding about 10 people in a free speech zone that were protesting and he basically mocked them. Uh, for for only you know mustering ten protesters, uh, so the question is: Is it a sign that there's fatigue among protesters uh, that the Trump campaign has successfully sort of taken steps to dissuade these people? Uh, it's not clear, uh, but one protester in in Mesa suggested to me that most of her friends were out uh, organizing and knocking on doors, uh, so it could be sort of a hollow victory. Uh, for the Trump campaign and for these supporters. They've gotten rid of these protesters that bother them so much. Well, and, um, and that, that really, it's also, I, I think, probably a prudent uh, decision by some of the resist folks, because I remember uh, when you mentioned, I, I'd forgotten about the whole uh, Chicago rally. Uh, that was, I think, ultimately a, a positive, a plus for the Trump campaign, because they got to, you know, play the victim card. They also got to, you know, point out, look, these, this is what we're up against, you know, these left-wing mobs. Um, I'm guessing that... Uh, 
that Trump would like nothing more than for these mobs to show up at his rally so that he could he could push through that particular theme. So well, let's talk about, you know, we are in an era where, where it's some of the substance and there are substantive things that are happening on a regular basis almost uh, get lost. Uh, the the administration actually rolled out, uh, you know, a potentially rather consequential uh, decision yesterday, uh, trying to hold down drug prices. Uh, this, of course, comes in, you know, just right before the midterm elections, in which Democrats are just pounding and pounding away uh, on on health care. You know, as a as a longtime conservative, it's somewhat ironic to see a Republican president actually embracing what looks like price controls. But um, this move to bring the price that uh, the federal government pays for drugs in the line to what other you know similar countries is paying strikes me as uh, as something that's going to play well politically that's right and it's it's uh, as is often the case with this administration it's a little mystifying that they've rolled it out with so little fanfare that it's coming uh, so soon before the midterms without a lot of time to actually uh, promote it and get it into the bloodstream and get it into the minds of voters. Um, and so it's, it raises a question from a political standpoint of why was it rolled out just now? Why was it rolled out the way that it was rolled out? Um, why wasn't it part of a, a package that Trump has been promoting, you know, for for weeks on the trail going into the midterms. Yeah, that this this might have made a difference, more of a difference, say, you know, two three months ago than it does right now. I mean, I I, I would see, you know, again, I'm as a conservative, I'm I'm very you know leery of, of government price controls, but I could certainly see that this would put uh, Democrats back on their heels. I'm I'm trying to imagine how the Democrats are are going to respond to this, but I guess they won't uh, they won't have to. Um, the Daily Standard podcast is brought to you today by ExpressVPN. Look, with all the recent news about online security breaches, it's pretty hard not to worry about where your data goes. Making an online purchase or simply accessing your email could put your private information at risk because you are being tracked online by social media sites, marketing companies, and your mobile or internet provider. That's not paranoia. That's reality. Not only can they record your browsing history, they often sell it to other companies who want to profit from your information. That's why I decided to take back my privacy using ExpressVPN. It's an easy-to-use app that runs seamlessly in the background of my computer, my phone, and my tablet. Turning on ExpressVPN protection only takes one click. And ExpressVPN secures and anonymizes your internet browsing by encrypting your data and hiding your public IP address. Protecting yourself with ExpressVPN costs less than $7 a month. It is rated the number one VPN service by TechRadar and comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So if you ever, ever use public Wi-Fi, which is all of you, and you want to keep hackers and spies from seeing your data, ExpressVPN is the solution. If you don't want to hand over your online history to your internet provider or data resellers, ExpressVPN is the answer. So to protect your online activity today, and find out how you can get three months free at Express. Go to expressvpn.com slash standard. That is E-X-P-R-E-S-S vpn.com slash standard for three months free with a one-year package. Visit expressvpn.com slash standard to learn more. Okay, so Ben, in the few days, what are we now, 11 days out from the midterm election? That sounds right to me. Yeah. What are you? Uh, what? What are you? What are you looking at uh, the next week? Is it, are we just simply in campaign mode? 
Uh, is there anything else that uh, that you would say, make sure you keep your eyes on this? The only other thing, and it's not clear that this is going to be much of a factor in the midterms, is there is a uh, November 4th deadline <clears throat> uh, for you know, deciding whether to continue sanctions, uh, certain sanctions on Iran. Mm. Um, and I'll have to I'll have to look at the details of that. I do know that Iran hawks um, are keeping an eye on that. Uh, I believe that Israel uh, is a little bit concerned that uh, the Khashoggi killing and what it means for our relationship with Saudi Arabia, uh, which of course affects how we're posturing on Iran, uh, could screw with that a little bit. Um, well, let's let's talk about that, where we're at on the Khashoggi killing, because the, the president has made it very clear that he really, really wants to believe um, that, uh, that you know, the, the royal family was not involved. But then the Saudis have been changing their story um, rather remarkably. Where are we at? Is the is the administration comfortable that they have weathered this, that they're going to be able to keep the arms deals on track, that uh, they're going to be able to keep the the uh, the MBS uh, Jared Kushner bromance going? So Mike Pompeo announced earlier this week that uh, the State Department was revoking visas for Saudis that they deemed uh, responsible for the killing. It, it does seem like the administration is hoping that this will put a stake in the heart uh, of the issue. Uh, it's also possible that there will be global Magnitsky sanctions uh, on officials that, that are deemed responsible. Uh, that is essentially a slap on the wrist. Right. Uh, there were, you know, have obviously been calls for uh, total reevaluation of the relationship with Saudi Arabia in light of this killing. Uh, or something more intermediate like canceling uh, this arms deal. Um, does that not seems seem, highly unlikely. Right. It does not seem like the president uh, or any members of his inner circle, as far as I can tell, have any sort of appetite for that. Uh, they view this as a, a blip and a distraction to be managed and navigated. Uh, and, and frankly, there's mm -hmm. only so long that something like this can stay in the news. Uh, it, it did have a pretty long shelf life, um, but I'd be surprised uh, if it's still uh, at the top of the agenda. You, you know, that, 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 is a, that is a really good point that we live in an age in which, you know, our, our, our you know, we, we can keep a focus for what maybe, you know, one or two news cycles at most this did have uh, a longer run in in part because uh the of the media tie in the washington post uh, was quite relentless but there uh, there there is a limit especially with the elections coming up ben thanks so much for uh joining me ben schreckinger is the white house reporter for politico and thank you for listening to the daily standard podcast i'm charlie sykes we'll be back on monday and we'll do this all over again <laughs>